Hi, Simon here. And before we get to this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you about our Black Friday course offer, where for one week only, we're offering you our comprehensive online only SUP safety course for 50% off. And that's a huge reduction down to £18.50 for lifetime access. It's full of instructor-led videos, quizzes and downloads with the key information you need to know and it's designed to help you weigh up and make the right decisions as you get on the water. The aim of the course is to give new or intermediate paddlers the help you need to become more self-sufficient. It's all useful stuff and it covers tides, conditions, weather, water flow, planning, cold water kit, beach safety and a whole lot more. This is an offer we only do over Black Friday week. So don't miss out on this 50% offer and you can claim it by going to supfmpodcast.com forward slash course and by using the code BF50. So that's supfmpodcast.com forward slash course using the code BF50 for 50% off and that offer ends at midnight on Tuesday, the 30th of November, 2021. Okay, let's get on with the show. Aloha and welcome back. My name's Simon Hutchinson, and in the SUPFM podcast, I talk to people who inspire and add to your experience of the sport. In every episode, I talk to individuals who have either done something incredible in SUP or who offer some learning or knowledge or perspective, which can add something to your time on the water. I've talked to world champions, scientists, authors and TED speakers and other remarkable people who can help you in your stand-up paddleboard journey. This episode is brought to you in association with Starboard. Starboard has a long history in board design, and you can listen to the man himself, the creator of the brand, Sven Rasmussen, in episode 71, where he talks about how he entered the windsurfing market first with his innovative designs back in 1994. And from there, the brand became a market leader within a decade. And let me tell you, that did not happen by accident. The brand spotted the potential of stand-up paddling and have really got behind the sport. While focusing on reducing their environmental impact, they've been continuously improving and innovating their boards and their paddles for all abilities. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. You can always catch up with us on Instagram and Facebook, but if you did want to keep it old school, we've relaunched our SUPFM email newsletter, which goes out weekly with a whole lot of value-added updates on future episodes, SUP news, starter packs, and some added extras. And if you subscribe, you can also get our SUPFM guide to our favourite stand-up paddle apps for free. And you can subscribe by heading over to our website, supfmpodcast.com. Just scroll to the bottom and you can put your details in there. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Joe Piscatella, the Los Angeles-based director, executive producer and writer of the documentary film Last Known Coordinates, which is all about the legendary South African waterman, Chris Burtish, doing the impossible and crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a paddleboard, which he did in 2016. 
I caught Joe during launch week. And as this goes out, it's still launch week. But if you haven't caught this film already, it's highly recommended. And I don't know whether it's just because I'm closer to this, but it's a genuinely fascinating film. And you can catch it on iTunes and Vimeo. And I think it's also on Google Play in some countries too. So here's the director of the film, last known coordinates, Joe Piscatella. Hey, Joe, welcome to SUP FM. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. And obviously, our conversation today is all about the new film, Last Known Coordinates. And for people who haven't seen the film yet, it's only been out a couple of days, which makes me doubly grateful that you've come on during launch week. But uh, it's about Chris Burtish, who's a man who really specialises in doing the impossible. And uh, it's the story about how he took a stand-up paddleboard across the Atlantic back in 2016. And uh, you were kind enough to allow me to see an advanced copy. And all I can say, Joe, is congratulations on the film, because it really tells a fabulous story. And as a viewer, it also makes you feel like you've really lived through it with everyone else. You must be really pleased with it. I I am very pleased with the film, and I'm very pleased that the world is finally getting to see it. I mean, this film is an incredible journey from when Chris Burdish came up with just the idea to, hey, I'm going to stand up paddleboard from Africa to North America solo by myself. That in and of itself is an insane journey. But, you know, every film, just getting them made and, and putting them together and getting them out into the world is sort of its own incredible journey as well. So I'm so pleased that I'm here talking with you about it today. So how would you describe the film then? You know, the way I always pitch it to people is it's, it's the story of a man who is just driven. I mean, Chris Burdish is a guy who I can just best describe as I've never met somebody with that sort of a drive. And after winning the big wave surf contest Mavericks in 2000, he had achieved his life goal. I mean, this is what he had always wanted to do. And he got back to South Africa and there was an emptiness to him. He just felt like he had lost his purpose. And one day he decided that he knew what his purpose was again. And he was going to put together this incredible endeavor of uh, stand-up paddleboarding solo, completely unsupported from Africa to North America. And he was going to do it to raise money for uh, some charities that he felt very near and dear to his heart in South Africa. And once he puts his mind to it, he's going to go do this, despite the fact that family, friends, experts are all weighing in saying, hey, Chris, this could end really, really badly. Like, maybe this isn't the best idea. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredible thing. And I remember before he went off on the expedition, when it was trailered in 2015, hearing about it and thinking exactly that, you know, this is this is just an, an unbelievable challenge. But how much did you know about him before you started the project? I knew very little. I knew he was a guy who had won Mavericks, but that was kind of it. I'm not... I'm not immersed in the surf world, although I do live in Los Angeles, so I have plenty of friends who are. So I I just knew him by reputation as he was a big wave surfer who had won a very prestigious big wave competition. Aside from that, I wasn't aware of his journey yet. I wasn't aware of all the things, all the records he had set and all these sort of amazing achievements he had already accomplished in his life. I sort of came into it a little cold, but that's also what grabbed me because here you have, you know, a, an elite class athlete. I mean, here you have a, you know, for to use a cliche, the Michael Jordan of his sport. And 
he suddenly decides to do something that is just so bonkers and so out of the ordinary and so fraught with, hey, it could really go wrong. I was really drawn to a character like that. I'm, I'm drawn in the films that I make to unusual, the way I always describe my, my genre is unlikely heroes who stand up to enormous power structures. In this case, the power structure is the Atlantic Ocean and all 4,050 4, miles of it. And as you've mentioned, he won Mavericks. And that story in itself, I've heard him talking about that. And that was incredible and a real testament to his resilience and also to his adaptability because he basically got there on a shoestring. He used his last few dollars to get over to where the competition was. And on the way over there, he surfboard and his wetsuit went missing. So he managed to win the competition despite that being the case. So, you know, having one on borrowed equipment, it was quite amazing. So I guess it was entirely typical for him to focus on something as revolutionary as this. So how did you um, choose the, the name of, of the film? Because it's called Last uh, Known Coordinates. I presume that's got something to do with the fact that he was just out there on his own, completely independent. He, he was. There's a... It's funny, we went through several titles on this film, and it was always one of those – title searches are always – it's a tough job because either there's another film that's been named that or it's something that doesn't wholly represent the film. And we were in the final stages of editing, and I think there's a line in the film, and I can't remember if it's actually still there or it was in an earlier cut, but the boat is going out to meet as he's making his approach to North America, and it's – you know, there's a storm brewing and his boat is sinking and all the thing is fraught with peril. And the guy says, give me Chris's last known coordinates so we can find him. And that was kind of the moment for us where it was like, that's what it is. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head when you describe, when you talk about Chris's, the way he adapted to Mavericks. I mean, Chris is that guy who just, he can adapt to anything. And I think that's what makes him so remarkable. So how did you get involved in the film, Joe? Because it seems like there's a number of, of people involved in it. It feels like a real team effort, but you came in relatively late, didn't you? It did. I did. So films are always a very collaborative medium, and this one was, was no different. And sort of the, the journey of this film was Chris came up with, uh, Chris Burdish came up with this idea that he was going to not only cross the Atlantic on a paddleboard by himself, but he was going to film it. And so he had hired his own film crew to, to follow him in his journey as he was trying to get it off the ground because, you know, he didn't decide to do it one day and then launch the next. I mean, this was a, you know, three year, four year journey of raising the money, getting a, a paddleboard craft designed, testing the craft, being sure that, that, you know, putting it through the paces to, to, to re figure out, hey, we could actually do this. There was actually a Frenchman who tried to do something similar that launched about a couple months before Chris Burdish was set to go. A very similar looking craft. He made it less than 24 hours before he had to be rescued by the, the Coast Guard. And that was a moment I know for Chris and for his team of, well, what are we getting ourselves into? The guy that just tried it literally didn't make it for 24 hours before he had to be rescued. I know. Wow, that's, that's absolutely it. Amazing. So you got into it through some people that you'd worked with previously in the film industry. Is that right? That's correct. So uh, a producer by the name of Bruce McDonald, who's a big producer in South Africa, he called me one day. We had worked together 
10 plus years ago on a, on a small scripted project. And he called me up and he said, man, I know you're now doing doc films. I'm involved in this documentary film of Chris Burdish. And I've got these two other filmmakers on board, the Mason brothers, Chris Mason and Luke Mason, who were both South African filmmakers. And they were trying to figure out the million dollar question for this entire movie is we've got this amazing footage. We've got, you know, a camera crew followed Chris before he left. We had, there were multiple high-end GoPros all around his craft for the entire journey. There was a team that shot some beautiful footage for his finish. And there were some interviews that had been shot. And it was like, now what do we do? How do we make this into a cohesive story that's going to resonate with people? And so I was brought in and, you know, it was very much a partnership between myself and the Mason brothers as we really kicked the tires on the story and tried to, to figure out how do you take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage, all, you know, the bulk of it being on the water and make it into something that, that people are going to want to watch and be inspired by. Absolutely. And and the film is, is split into various different sections. I mean, there's a lot about his background and clearly family and his sort of personal experience provides a real driving force for his single-minded determination. And there were some really interesting chats with members of, of his family. Just tell us a, a little bit about their general view of of his trip because they were all recorded obviously before he went and before you got involved in it. It was. So one of the, the things that we really wanted to focus on in this film is to, to try to shine a light on what drives somebody to do this. I mean, the, the, the feat in and of itself is remarkable, but there's also that looming question. Every time I tell somebody, yeah, there's this guy, he stand up paddle boarded by himself from Africa to North America the first question is always, did he make it? And then question number two is always, why? Like what what propels somebody? What compels them to say, hey, this is what I'm going to go spend my next three, four, five years on. And so to get to the heart of that story, we wanted to interview his his family and his friends and get their take on it. And here's something that was very interesting. So Chris is the youngest of three brothers. And his dad was a larger-than-life sort of uh, hero in South Africa. His dad was the was a championship water skier. And his dad, I think at one point, may have even been represented South Africa in the Olympics. And his dad was somebody who was the first guy to canoe uh, or to kayak down one of the big rivers in South Africa. I mean, he had this larger-than-life presence. And Chris was always the youngest of three brothers who were into big wave surfing and and kind of rough and tumble sports. And Chris was always trying to keep up with his older brothers. And and part of his drive comes from that. And I, we we touch upon it in the film, but one of his one of his friends says, you know, growing up, Chris's dad and his older brothers, you know, often gave him, you know, they, they would tease him. You're the youngest, you're the smallest, you can't do what the other kids can do yet. And I think that just lit a spark in Chris of, hey, if they can do it, I can do it, and I'm going to take it to the next level to show them. That's really clear. Seems like he was just a powerful role model, his father, and uh, and a real idol to them. What does his brothers think about this, though? Because I guess you've had a chance to chat to them after the event. Obviously, there'd be great relief there, but but what what are their reflections on the trip now he's actually completed it you know i think they 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 wavered i think when when he first announced the idea 
I think both of his brothers, despite being guys that arguably could maybe even do something like this themselves, I mean, they're both incredible surfers and and really renowned watermen in their own right. I know their initial reactions were just, wait, you want to do what? (laughs) Wait, why? You know, same reaction than anybody else would have to it. And then they kind of got into it. And I know that once he completed it, they were so very, very proud. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the film is actually, and it's sort of a throwaway line, but it's Christmas dinner at the British household. There, They have a family beach cabin in South Africa, and the whole family was there. And of course, Chris was out somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, and he was in the middle of a horrible storm. And his brother tells the story of, we just talked to Chris on the satellite phone. Things aren't going well. We don't know if he's going to make it. It's Christmas Day. And now I've hung up the phone and we're just supposed to go on with our family dinner. Like he was like, that, that's a really hard ask of his family. And I think while he was on the journey, I, I know, I, I know his, his entire family, they, they were on the edge of their seat of what, what is he going through? We can't imagine. And there's a, a little bit of a feeling of helplessness because they're both consummate watermen. And yet there's nothing you can do to help your brother who's, you know, somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic on a tiny, tiny little paddleboard craft. But at the end, again, my, and this might actually be my biggest favorite, favorite moment in the film is when they leave to to try to go find him in the boat. And there's that moment where they see a little green light on the horizon and they're hopeful that it might be him. And you can, even before you hear them call out, you can almost feel that sense of relief of, that might be him. And if it is, it's going to be okay. Three months on the water, absolutely incredible. And we'll talk a bit about some of those onboard excerpts from it, which are in the film, which are just absolutely terrifying. But, you know, he's, he's, you know, very together or seems very together in all of it and almost in a sort of state of ecstasy when he reached halfway. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that in a second because we mentioned already about uh, his adaptability and his resilience. And uh, we refer to it in the film. And obviously you can only put so much content in the film. But while he's adaptable enough to adjust to whatever the the situation is in the film, it shows him adjusting to various different problems that he experiences while while he does it. He's also an incredible planner. And I think uh, one of the interviewees said that uh, he's got a fallback and a fallback to the fallback. His planning is absolutely impeccable. And you're absolutely right. The the quote in the film that, that sums him up best is, you know, he's got a backup of a backup of a backup. And he really had every contingency that he could possibly imagine somehow covered. And again, in going through the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage of of just him on the water, that's what stood out to me was, you know, I remember at one point saying to him, man, Chris, I really would love to find that moment where you feel like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Oh my, like this is, I got in over my head somehow. And he he looked at me and he was like, I don't know if that exists. He said, I really was prepared. And I also realized that in preparing, I couldn't panic. The moment you panic is the moment that all is lost. And if all is lost, then really it, you could be in trouble. And he said, so my kind of mantra for, throughout all of this is, you know, uh, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And 
that's really how he approached the this entire journey. And again, I just I was so struck by the meticulousness of his of his planning. And listen, there were there's not a single thing that went right, particularly in the early part of his journey. I mean, everything he had planned for went out the window due to storms and sandstorms and weather and and you know big concerns. His, his craft was going to be dashed onto the rocks and even though every curveball got thrown at him, he just figures out how to adapt to it. Absolutely. And I won't go through some of the set pieces there because I'll leave that for people who are watching the film. But there's a, a lovely little theme in there about his drinking vessels and how he had to adapt to what he actually ended up drinking out of. And I have no idea how you managed to pick that out of the footage, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lovely little sort of theme that runs through. Well, my, uh, I will give uh, a tip of my hat to my editor, Matthew Sultan. Matt has edited all of my documentary films, and he's brilliant at what he does. And he just kept finding these little nuggets. And, you know, one of the, one of the hardest parts of, of putting together a film like this is there's so many hours of footage on the water, and it all sometimes can feel like it runs together because the setting never changes. It's always a horizon of blue water. And so it was trying to find those little moments that you can identify with and that sort of define Chris. And there's just a little runner through the film of Chris, the waves keep knocking Chris's water bottle off the deck and he can't ever get to it. And there's just, it was just that really sort of fun moment of, it's, it's a fun, lighthearted moment. But at the same time, that's what he has to drink water out of. And he's increasingly running out of, out of vessels to be able to put, fresh water in for his drinking. Yeah, that's a really nice touch, that one. The other person who's quite prominently involved in the interviews is Levin Brown, who's British and an advisor. Just tell us about uh, him and his involvement. Yeah, so Levin was, was hired by Chris and his team to be an advisor to help him plan the route. Levin had, has... Uh, across, I believe he's done the Atlantic. I know he's done a couple of very long ocean crossings in, I think he's done a two-man boat and maybe a four-man boat and really had experience with wind and currents and navigating in a craft, you know, on a, a very, very small craft. And so he was brought in and he just was a guy who Yes, he was a logistics guy. Yes, he was the guy that was always looking at the weather charts and was, you know, doing computer modeling of weather patterns and currents. But I think he was also a voice of reason and a voice that sort of grounded Birdish in, hey, you can do this. You know, you're going to be the first guy to do it on a paddleboard, but you've got this. Mm. Yeah, incredible. And and the the craft that he did it on, so it's not a stand-up paddleboard that a leisure paddler would recognize. It, it's like a sort of bit of a hybrid between those ocean-going rowing boats um, and a stand-up paddleboard, but it's still significantly smaller. It seems significantly smaller than those big boats and certainly not as robust. And of course, having that central deck with you know only four inches above where the water is, you know, it looked incredibly fragile. And uh, and there were a few issues, weren't there? As uh, as you'd expect there to be with three months in, uh, in the water. For sure, his craft really is remarkable. I mean, it 
it's not much longer than a, a long regular paddleboard, stand-up paddleboard. And it has a, a it's got this very tiny little cabin, if you can call it that, that you know, he could curl up in the fetal position and lock himself in during storms or to to grab a little bit of sleep. And but you, you know, the deck, I think it's even less than four inches. I think it was like two and a half, three inches off the water. And I know the width was the same as a regular stand-up paddleboard. So there wasn't it was an unusual craft and yet it was still within the realm of, a, you know, of being a stand-up paddle craft. And every time we're in that little cabin with him again, I'm always, I, I can't believe what he endured in that. I mean, whether, I, I, I'm claustrophobic just looking at footage of it. Well, it's incredible. There's a really powerful piece and it's beautifully lit. There's a, it's lit in red. I mean, some of these moments, are, you know, obviously, whether accidentally or deliberately, are really, really strong. But he's in there in some huge, great storm going outside, and he just seems as cool as a cucumber. Did you speak to him about what was going through his mind in that scene? You know, he, he's very hyper-focused anytime there, there's heightened danger. I mean, he just really has an ability to stay calm stay hyper-focused, figure out the issue at hand, and then think through the solution. But I know, you know, particularly there were some storms that went, you know, weeks and just the exhaustion. I mean, the exhaustion of constantly being on high alert at all times is just draining. I mean, not only is he paddling 16, 18 hours a day some days, Every moment, whether you're paddling or you're not paddling, is spent just on, you know, that adrenaline pumping, you're ready for anything. And, you know, when you're talking about 93 days, it just drains you emotionally. And how he managed to stay cool with that going on and staying within that tiny little cabin, that's that's quite incredible. And um, there are some other bits which are not sort of quite as as violent as that. There's a really lovely piece where he's filming underneath the paddleboard while he's scrubbing the the barnacles off the the bottom of the, the paddleboard. How did he set that up? Presumably, he had quite a array of filming equipment on board. He did, and and you know he managed to to drop a camera in under the water that. That moment where he's hanging on to the back of the boat and he, you just see all those fish going by and it's a, a color of blue that is just, you don't see it when you are, you know, are standing on the shore's edge. It, it's one of the, it, it's, to me, it's the most striking image in the film. I mean, yes, what he did was amazing. Yes, the, the sort of climax of the film is, is one that, you know, hopefully people are standing up and cheering for, but there's something just very soothing about that moment where he's under the craft. And he's just kind of hanging on and this, you know, all these fish and marine life are swimming past him that I suddenly, that was the moment for me where I was like, I get why he's out here. I mean, I, he is a guy who thrives on that solitude. He's somebody who just really, it, it drives him and there's something about it that, that feeds him. You know, we didn't really go into it on the film and it's something that I would encourage you if you speak with him to, to ask him about. When he returned from this journey, he had a hard time re-entering society. I mean, he mm. had gone 93 days really with, without speaking to anybody, but the occasional conversation on a satellite phone when he could get good enough reception 
with the, with his communications team and with Levin Brown, but he really hadn't interacted with anybody. And I know, I mean, he, he, he's talked uh, about it a lot. It, it was very hard for him to suddenly have demands placed on his time and have to do the press tour that came after he, he finished. And, all of these sort of societal demands we put on somebody who's just done something incredible. That was hard for him. I bet. Yeah, it's very difficult to adjust to that. And we've had a few explorers on this show, and it's something that they've always wrestled with post-expedition blues, I think some have called it. So when you're focused on something and everything is pointing in that direction for a number of years, and then you finally manage to achieve it, then you not only struggle with the social contact, but also, you know, what next? What, you know, what do I do now? I've achieved my Everest. It, it, it must be very, very tough to wrestle with. I think it is. And, and at the same time, you know, there's a him trying to get this entire journey launched was, you know, really fraught with, there was just a lot of issues, whether it's family and friends doubting if he could do it. There were financial issues. There were a hundred different reasons why he shouldn't have gone. And I know that when his, when he actually got ready to go, his family and friends, not only were they worried about him just being able to accomplish this, I think there was a real worry about his state of mind. Is he in the right frame of mind to go tackle this? Because it really took everything he had just to get to the launch date. I mean, we didn't, I don't think we touch on it in the film. I think maybe we cover it very briefly. But, you know, when, when he actually got to Mozambique to launch, it, it, he had to wait three weeks. There was a, there was a weather window that, that disappeared and then there was a storm coming and, Again, just imagine being on edge every single day of is today the day? Nope, now it's not. Okay, is today the day? Oh, no, it's not. And it got to the point where they were getting ready to revoke his visa and he was sleeping on his craft trying to avoid getting kicked out of the country. And so his, the entire launch was just fraught with all sorts of logistical issues. And the moment that he gets out onto that water and the moment that land sort of disappears and there's that moment in the film where he's away from land and he sort of jumps in and swims with the turtles. And that's, you can just see the tension melt away. I mean, this is where he wants to be. This is where he thrives. This is, that's his happy place. And you can really see that in the film as well, because he reaches, it must be mid-Atlantic, and he's just in a total state of ecstasy. And for anyone else, you'd, that would be the time where you're, you're feeling most isolated and most under threat. But he, it was totally, as you say, his happy place. He does. I think he hit a euphoric state out there. And I think it was a combination of he was in his happy place. He, I think, was exhausted both mentally and physically. I mean, that, that paddling for hours and hours on end. And again, that sort of emotional drain of just always being on heightened alert and then being by himself. You know, I mean, he, you know, he starts to go a little loony out there, but it's out of sort of this euphoric state. And there was some fun in in sort of going through that footage when we were in the edit of, okay, is he really losing his grasp or is he just, you know, on a, some sort of emotional high that most of us will never get to achieve because we're never going to be in that position to do it. And I think it's probably a little bit of a combination of both. It comes across so strongly mid 
film really powerful so just because i'm a little bit of a feel nerd just wanted to ask you a bit about managing the film itself because you know as you mentioned you've got all of that footage that you had to rang from before he left and then you've got three months of footage there so i presume it was gopros that you were using and were they running the whole time or how was that whole um, process managed you know they were not running at all times, but, but Burdish was just, he was very diligent about getting moments. You know, I mean, again, he didn't, it wasn't like there were four cameras that were, that were fixated on him 24 seven, but mm. he, you know, he was, he knew, he, he knew when, when to pop them on and when to, to pop them off. And he had a solar panel on the, on the boat that, that, that would power both his desalinator. So he had drinking water but also uh, a battery pack that would charge these cameras. And I, I'm in awe of, of moments he selected of, I mean, yes, we had hundreds of hours of footage to work with, but we could have had a whole lot more had he just hit, you know, hit record and just let them run. And he, he, he had a very innate sense of, okay, I think, I think this afternoon's going to get a little hairy. Let's get it on camera. And I guess for him, it would have been something else to to focus on alongside the paddling. For us mere mortals, we'd just be concentrating on the uh, the activity in hand. But I guess that would be kind of quite a good distraction for him. Is that is that your assessment of it? You know, that's a good question that that you'd have to ask him. I would think so. But again, I, I'm I almost his his level of focus, his ability to just focus on the task at hand is so remarkable that I, I almost can't, can't comprehend how he did it. I mean, it's funny in one of the first meetings I had with him, he, we were discussing what footage we should use, what footage he thought was the most powerful, what were his favorite moments on the journey and just really trying to get a sense of, okay, what, what are the things that he was most proud of and wanted to feature? And at some point I said to him, I don't think audiences can comprehend or connect to a character who can do this. I mean, the, the example I gave to him, I said, if you ask the average basketball fan, give me three facts about Michael Jordan. One of those three facts is going to be he got cut from his high school basketball team when he was a like a sophomore. Because that moment resonates with people. Because it takes a superhuman person and it makes them relatable. We all know what it's like to get cut from the team as a, you know, as a kid. And mm. I can't, I can't dunk a basketball. I can't take off from midcourt. I can't win, you know, however many NBA championships Michael Jordan did, but I can certainly relate to the guy who got cut from his high school team. And it was a little bit like that with Chris Burdish of we're going to show all the amazing stuff, but Burdish, we got to show some of the more character building moments with you. Because you operate on a different level when it comes to this. And I want audiences to be able to see what it means to be human. Because you're superhuman in some of these moments. But let's give audiences a glimpse of what it means to be human. Because that's what is going to have people latch onto your character and really root for you. And I think that was a little bit of an eye-opener for him. I think he initially saw this as a highlight reel. Hey, let's show me being awesome all the time. And I think myself and the Mason brothers, you know, we, we really pushed him to go out of his comfort zone and, hey, let's show some vulnerability and let's show some moments 
where where it was a challenge and difficult because that's what gets people to root for you and that's what gets people to say oh man what he did is actually really extraordinary because i can identify with the vulnerability but i can't fathom doing what he did yeah absolutely and and it's that classic storytelling approach isn't it the hero's journey and the struggling and the overcoming and you know i could definitely see those strands within the story it's all about that level of accessibility and people identifying with him but also the fact that some of these achievements sometimes are really not represented in the right way because people see the end products but they don't see the practice and the preparations that goes on behind it and that Mavericks interview which I I listened to um, a little while back with him he talked about that he talked about just raising the bar a little at a time now clearly you you can't sort of do that with an atlantic crossing but yeah it it does give you that level of accessibility and to understand exactly the magnitude of the achievement it's you're absolutely right and it's you know again it's what we really wanted to be able to convey to an audience is yes he did something superhuman but there's also you know a, a human vulnerability to him of I mean, he really put it all on the line. He put some relationships on the line. He put his life on the line. He put it all, you know, I mean, he, he Burdish has this, this sort of catchphrase that's now become a little part of my lexicon after making the film where he says, all in. And this this journey for him, he always says, this is the definition of being all in on something. And that's admirable. I mean, I, how often in our lives do we not go all in on something because we're scared or we're afraid or we don't know what the results are going to be or we don't want to know what the results are going to be? And I don't know. There's something just inspiring about him saying, I don't care. I'm all in. Let's do this thing and let's see what happens. But there's, he just has such an innate belief in himself and his ability that to me, that was one of the mo- the, the inspiring takeaways that I took just in being a part of the the team that made this film. And just to restate, it's a fantastically powerful film and I just really enjoyed it and was so inspired by it. And Joe, we talked about the footage and uh, the editing. So if you were to put together a director's cut, what things stayed on the, um, the cutting room floor, which you would have really liked to have included in the documentary oh there were so many moments that we tried in in other cuts and earlier cuts that either they just didn't work or there wasn't quite enough footage to to tell the story or there wasn't any footage to tell the story but we know it happened i mean that the there's some there's a moment that we didn't include in the film where chris has the the craft has something called a para-anchor which is essentially, it's essentially a parachute that goes down uh, into the water that prevents him from drifting backwards. You know, the worst, the, the worst thing that can happen to him is he tries to get three, four hours sleep, and then you wake up and you realize you've drifted 30 miles back from where you just paddled. So he had this pair anchor, and early in the trip, the big mission was you got to get away from land, because if you don't get away from land soon enough, you know, you're going to get washed back in and where he was leaving from. He could be dashed against the rocks and either, you know, at best the the expedition is scrapped and at worst he dies. And at one point he becomes convinced that there's an octopus 
that has grabbed onto his para anchor and is dragging him and he doesn't know how to get it to stop. And there, there was no real, I mean, obviously we didn't have a camera down where the para anchor was, so you couldn't confirm it, but it was something that went on for quite some time. And Chris is convinced that's what it was. And it's, we toyed with, can we do an animated sequence? Can we do, how do we tell this just amazing moment? And ultimately it just didn't, Fit, but it's it's a moment that man, I would have loved to have figured out how to include it in the story because it's to hear if you have Chris on, have him tell that tale. It's it's remarkable. I will do. Yeah, here be monsters. It's the old seafarer's tale, isn't it? These it, creatures. Well, it sort of felt that way. They're like, Chris, do you really think that's an octopus? And Chris is like, I think it is a giant octopus. I or or uh, he might have called it a giant squid. It, it, again, it was the 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 old Mariner's tale of, you know, he's convinced there's something and everybody else says, I don't even think that really exists. How's this affected you? I mean, obviously you've been doing this for what five, this project for five years. Has this inspired you in any way in your everyday life? For example, have you got out on a paddleboard at any time? I have. So this film has inspired me really in two ways. And the first is I had never paddleboarded before I took this film on. And not because I had been avoiding it, I just really hadn't had an opportunity. Shortly after taking this on, I had the opportunity to, to paddleboard and I loved it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm still a novice. I'm still, you know, getting my sea legs on it, but I, I really enjoy it. I get out there and I, I do it. And it's something, again, I, I will credit Burdish with, with inspiring me to go try. And to be honest with you, the rest of the filmmaking team are all avid surfers and paddleboarders. So they all sort of, I was the lone guy who, who wasn't the, the, avid watermen that they all are. So I, I'm happy they inspired me to do that. But the other real inspiration for me was Burdish has this phrase in in the in the film and it's something that he really believes in. And it, it's one stroke at a time, one paddle at a time. And over the course of making this film, my wife was going through cancer treatment and she's doing great now. But it was it was a hard couple of years. I mean, it was a lot of sitting in hospital waiting rooms and a lot of doctor's offices and it was chemo rooms and radiation therapy and all the things that go with cancer treatment. And here we are trying to put this film together. And man, every time I hit that moment of, God, I don't know how I'm going to get up tomorrow and do this all again. It's hard when you have a loved one going through something like this. And I've got kids and I'm still trying to be a dad and still trying to make a film and all the, all the demands that are made upon me. And every time I was sort of getting to that moment of either exhaustion or self-pity, I just would think about those words of, hey, one stroke at a time, one mm. paddle at a time, that's how you get to the next place. And it really helped me. And I know that sounds maybe even cliche to say it, but there was just something inspirational about that that I just latched onto. And I, and it's really become a bit of a mantra now for my own life of man, when, you know, the next film gets really hard or there's something in life that just feels like it's not breaking my way, just, you know, take a deep breath, one stroke at a time, one paddle at a time, we'll get there. And, you know, it's something I think I'll carry with me for forever. Live with. And so, Joe, thanks ever so much for your time. If someone was wanting to, to watch the film, whereabouts is it available and, and where could they connect with you? Sure. The film is on iTunes, Vimeo On Demand, Google Play, depending on what part of the world you're in. But the best place to go is go to www.lastknowncoordinates.com. 
com. That's just our, our webpage and that'll have, you know, links to wherever you can, wherever you want to download it or rent it from. Fabulous. And of course, we'll have all of the links in the show notes. And just a, a final question. Obviously, it's available online. I know there are various restrictions um, around getting into cinemas, but have you considered a, a theatrical re- uh, release? Because the, it's a spectacular vista of s- swells and seas and so on. I would have thought that would have done very well in a huge screen. It, you know, one of the big disappointments for this film was it was the victim of the COVID shot. Mm-hmm. The initial plan for this film was some sort of limited theatrical release before it became available online. And suddenly all theaters shut down and that just wasn't going to be an option. And we very much wanted to get out the film. We didn't want to wait till theaters were back up and bustling again before mm-hmm. we started our rollout. And so it is a regret that I have because I have seen it on the big screen. And it's, it's spectacular to see those big ocean swells, you know, on a, mm. on a 20 foot screen. Well, there are all sorts of adventure film festivals out there. So uh, maybe it can pop up on, on those. For- but Joe, thanks ever so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Now how busy you are at the moment. All the best to you and your family and to the crew. And congratulations on such a fantastic film. Simon, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you guys, uh, you know, having me on and and pumping the film. And, uh, you know, it was a pleasure to to get to talk about this with you. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you enjoyed that chat with Joe. And from his account, it sounded like it was quite the endurance event to put the film together too. I hope you check it out and support the skills and the courage involved in making it. So take care, subscribe to our emails, please. And I'll see you on the water.